Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 3rd, 2022, the I Need Ammunition edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon at the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And back, thank goodness, we missed you, John, is John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning from New York. Hello. I miss you guys a lot. It feels, yeah, it feels like it was many years ago. Well, the world the world has actually changed since last week. Holy cow. That is yeah. literally true. This week, in fact, we're going to talk about the Ukrainian invasion that has upended the world we thought we knew. Then we're going to cogitate on, we'll puzzle over President Biden's State of the Union and, in fact, the State of the Union. Then we'll talk about San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, who faces a recall, what's behind this move to dump a reform-minded prosecutor. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is, I think, the fourth event of this century that fundamentally will change how our world works, like 9-11, like the Trump presidency and its various metastases, and like the pandemic, the Ukraine invasion feels like it could reshape the world practically overnight. And possibly, possibly, that's with a huge asterisk in the long run for the good, but not obviously in the short run for the good in the short run. And for as far as we can see, it will be suffering and misery and a worse world for the people of Ukraine and the people of Russia and and all of us. So much of why this moment is momentous has to do with the bravery of the people of Ukraine and its leaders, not rolling over, revealing that Ukraine just isn't some strain, wayward piece of Russia showing on social media, on the televisions of the world, that they're standing up for democracy, for connection to the world. They're setting an example for all of us. And it's so... so it is a mistake, I think, to think, oh, this this suffering is noble, this this the, these this fighting is wonderful, or anything like that. But we should acknowledge that this it is inspirational, right, Emily? Yeah, I think it's pretty breathtaking. I mean, I feel weird watching it because it feels like you're watching people who are, you know, like literally putting their lives on the line and they're ordinary civilians, and this is not their job. And one cannot help but imagine what would happen if one was in a similar situation, which is a kind of self-indulgent line of fantasy, but I indulge it anyway. And it just is so concrete and vivid, these images of people collecting glass bottles so they can turn them into Molotov cocktails, of sleeping in the subway, of patrolling the streets of um, Kiev and Kharkiv and other cities with guns when they just learned how to use those guns. The brutality that could still be unleashed and the um, damage and violence that's already happened is really chilling. So obviously, I'm really aware of that. But it just feels like they are taking a stand. And that is, yeah, it's really admirable. 
Do we think that this is the brighter side of the coin of nationalism, which is that, you know, nationalism is such an awful corrosive uh, poison across uh, our own country and across the world. And here you have people who are standing up for the idea. uh, I mean, they're standing up for freedom, but they're standing up for their community and their idea of themselves as uh, I love that expression, David, that not some stray piece of Russia, that they are, in fact, themselves and their own identity and and that that idea is what's at the heart of this. I mean, obviously, they want to live and they want to have human connection, but it's tied to the location where they live. Yeah. Well, connected deeply enmeshed in nationalism is this idea of patriotism, is this idea of a love of country, which isn't which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's a good thing. I've, I've, yeah, it's a good I've thing. Long felt myself to be a patriotic American, and and when you stand up for the best of what your country is, it's it's wonderful. But yes, John, I mean, obviously, it is it is connected to the the more alarming trends of nationalism. Uh, yeah, I guess my point was that that that, that we all, that I think of those trends as alarming, and there is this other side, which is which is what you've just articulated about patriotism and love of country, and and that given the the way we've talked about national identity over the last many years, that maybe part of what we're gravitating to or seeing is the, is the, the brighter side of that coin. Because this is a country which has so made itself, it is so aspired to these democratic ideals. It aspired to connection with, with uh, Europe. It has aspired to be part of uh, a, a larger global community. So it's not simply standing up for an idea of itself that was formed in some ancient past. It is not, it is not hearkening back to 1100, the year 1100, and the formation of the the proto-Russian state. It is hearkening back to these 30 years that they have forged together w- with the highest ideals: democracy, freedom, community, uh, uh, connection to the world, and peace. And those are those are wonderful ideals. I think we'd feel differently if this were the. I mean, the you could argue like what the what the Taliban represent, which is a form of of kind of. Islamic nationalism that looks back to 1500 years ago. I think that's such a great point. Yeah, I'm not even sure that's exactly, yeah, nationalism. But I mean, doesn't it also matter that Ukraine is not a major power, right? So they don't have, you know, the kind of military that can obliterate other countries. They gave up their nuclear weapons. They're not running the show globally, which I think makes their patriotism ring differently. And I also feel like we're they're reminding us that there are all these countries out there <laughs> that uh, that are in this situation and that we've had this global order in which they have been able to flourish and they've, you know, been protected, some of them by NATO, by other alliances, by a kind of general rule of law. And that now feels like it's in jeopardy. So it's like the Ukrainians are you know, glory to Ukraine. And they're also about this principle that you can be a country without nuclear weapons and survive on the world stage. One hopes. So the thing that is that is exciting and possibly good is this extraordinarily fast shift from a tolerance of Vladimir Putin and his his malevolent adventures to a near excommunication of Russia from the world economy and from civilized society, the currency reserves frozen, the airplanes grounded, the trade squeezed. It does. I mean, none of this means that they Russia won't win the war. None of this means it won't conquer Ukraine. None of it means it won't inflict terrible suffering, but that the costs will be extremely high. And thus, potentially, this reverses the thing that Ann Applebaum has been talking about, that the auto, that the autocrats have felt 
they felt impunity. And how confident are you, John? Well, I mean, I'm sure not at all confident. But uh, do you think there's any chance that this 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 puts the autocrats on notice that actually they they don't have impunity? Or is this just a very specific case of you can't invade a peaceful democratic neighbor with close ties to Europe? Right. It, well, it's a, we'll, we'll see. Um, it is both an affirmation of Applebaum's thesis and uh, we'll see whether those arrangements can withstand uh, the excommunication you're talking about. It's an affirmation of her thesis in that, that Putin felt uh, in addition to whatever's in his head, because of support from China and because of the the attempts they had made to kind of um, sanction-proof the country, which is built on trade and agreements and behavior that Applebaum writes about going around the norms of the world, um, thought he could do this. So so he thought there was a system in place because there there is one. It may just not be strong enough to to withstand the entire world's condemnation and we'll see i mean um one of the things that that is that that when you framed it the way you did at the start of this it, um it makes such sense because in response to this regardless of what happens in ukraine you'll have two reactions it seems one china which has adventuresome ideas about uh territory it would like to um claw back or take over is going to try to recession proof its economy in the way, you know, take a lesson from what is hurting Russia and try to protect itself. The U.S. will also, you heard Biden in his State of the Union talk about making more things in America, withdrawing in a sense from the global economic order to the extent that the, both the pandemic and this um, sanctions on Russia have shown the U.S. that it needs to be dependent on its own um, economy, uh, and so that'll change the way the U.S. behaves. Although I think probably, you know, 10 years from now, the incentives of the global market will probably snap back because it's just easier to work with um, in the global economy as it exists. But but those two changes that will be the result of this are going to be huge. Um, so that's not an answer to your question, but it's I think it's part of this as well. I mean, on the one hand, like, yes, I'm all for making the autocrats shake in their boots or at least feel like they're going to be consequences for their terrible behavior. On the other hand, having people across around the world connected in a global economy has helped raise the standard of living for all kinds of people who live in poor countries. It means that there's more connection among human beings, hopefully. Um, I mean, we've already seen a loss of that in the pandemic. And Ultimately, what one wants is not an isolated, um, you know, kind of wounded bear Russia. One wants a Russia that has a different leader and is part of what's happening. And it's very hard to see how Putin actually gets toppled from power in the middle of all this. And so I just feel a lot of I understand why everyone's moving in this direction. And I'm all for the consequences right now. But it also just feels really di distressing that this is the direction that the world is well, moving in. It's also Russia and China are not the same in this. It's it's impossible to analogize them because no. China is the world economy. <laughs> China is the right, engine. We wouldn't Russia, be yeah. able to do this yeah. to China economically. Russia is a, like, yeah. Russia is what you know half the size. Its economy is half the size of of France's, and it's it's a it's a nothing little country economically. It has tremendous natural resources, but even that, it's not you know it's natural resources which the world would be good to wean itself off of. So I don't think making Russia a pariah in order to make the point that autocrats can't do this is going to really damage the idea of globalism. I think it's going to hopefully damage the idea that you can be adventurous 
uh, in the way that Putin's being adventurous, unless you're China, in which case you can definitely do it because China's too big. Well, I think that Russia plus pandemic is going to change the way U.S. policy. I mean, we've already seen it um, because of the supply chain issues, if for nothing else. And that's a COVID thing. But um, but Russia's and and wait a few more weeks uh, will inspire probably pretty big changes in the way the U.S. thinks about doing. You know what's you know what's frustrating. I saw this small point made is how we so we have these ostensible allies. Uh, that produce a tremendous amount of oil in the Middle East, notably Saudi Arabia, and how completely uh, unhelpful they have been during this. The, the Saudis could make a big difference if they to the world energy market by ensuring people, oh, yeah, we're going to pump to make up for any loss of Russian supply if you guys don't use it. And have they shown any willingness to do this? Have they expressed any any interest after all the pandering the U.S. has done, after all the sucking up and alliance no not at all not at all one thing to watch that's connected to this idea of ukraine and its heroism and i also am interested in what you all think of zelensky and the power of the single actions of one man or woman in a contemporary life to inspire others because we've spent so much time talking about the destruction and erosion of norms and and behaviors with donald trump and here you have somebody whose behavior is literally inspiring people and so i want your thoughts about that but H.R. McMaster, who was Trump's uh, national security um, advisor, basically said, you know, the behavior of the Ukrainians is showing is how difficult it will be for Putin to occupy Ukraine. He's going to essentially have an insurgency on his hand and that 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 requires a lot of of, it bleeds you. And so um, that's worth thinking about, because one of the theories is that Putin won't stop. He's going to keep rolling. But this is going to be. Even even if everybody's right and, and Russia is going to succeed, succeeding is incredibly costly. And when you when you have a population that is actively resisting you. Yeah. Everyone who's looked at this sort of says there are three outcomes. One outcome is the, the happy, happy, clappy uh, jubilation day. This motivates the Russian people, the oligarchs to get rid of Putin. And this war ends with Putin's Putin out. And, and rush out of Ukraine. That's number one. We all, I think, would wish for that. The second is what Tom Friedman called the dirty compromise, where Russia is allowed to maintain, to keep some of what it's gained, particularly on the, in southern Ukraine. And Ukraine essentially is, is a, becomes a, not, not quite as much of a satellite state of Russia, but not within its orbit and, and, and unarmed. And then the third is this conquering of Ukraine by with a deeply bloody, terrible war, uh, where by Putin destroys Kiev, which is a beautiful ancient city, and inflicts tremendous damage the way he did in Chechnya or the way he and his clients did in Syria. And that's it's true that it would be terrible; it would be a very bad position for Russia and the Russian army to be in. But it would be worse for the Ukrainians because that's their country that's being destroyed. And the tension here, right, is that what Putin would need to do to subjugate the Ukrainians will eventually filter back into Russia. And a lot of Russians have friends and relatives in Ukraine. And are they really going to stand for it? Even if they can't oust Putin, can they make him feel like he's losing his grip and that there is a real cost? I mean, that that seems like the next like huge set of questions that as real information starts to move into Russia, and that is going to happen, they're not going to be able to keep people from calling it a war and invasion and keep out all the true facts forever. Like, 
what 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 is that going to mean? Right. That's that's that is the point I was trying to make, Emily, which is a, holding Ukraine when you have an active insurgency is going to be is going to ricochet back on Russia. What what do you guys I, I John, I just want to align myself with your point about Volinsky earlier. It is incredibly inspirational. It, it, so much of what we're taught about history is it's these structures and movements that are beyond a single person. And then you run across a Putin or a Trump and you think, oh, it's Unfortunately, it's not beyond a single person. A single person can all too much bend the arc of history in a bad way. But then you meet somebody, Zelensky, who, God, I hope this man lives. I hope he survives to, to collect his, uh, you know, collect his accolades, um, can bend it back in the other direction. And it's, it's incredibly inspirational. Yeah, there is a really lovely piece in The Atlantic by Gal Beckerman about Zelensky's Jewishness and the sort of unlikeliness of a Jewish hero from Ukraine, um, someone whose family died in the Holocaust, someone whose family, like so many Jewish families in this part of the world, really had no way to express their Jewishness except the sort of outsidery status, which Beckerman was arguing is now kind of a Ukrainian asset in some way. And I think, of course, there's also just this like, Hollywood movie idea of the actor who played the president becoming the president and then using his performance charisma to bring the country together. I mean, I don't know if you've watched any of the clips from the show where Zelensky was the sort of beleaguered president, but the it's just a crazy unspooling of art and life and art and life. And we've just had our own kind of example of art and life with reality show and life. And the example was such the opposite. I mean, using the talent for mass appeal to build the fires of grievance, it's an extraordinary moment that somebody who's going to be quite, who is quite clever and knows about the intersection of politics and media and culture will be able to compare those two um, elegantly. Can we wrap this by talking about how worried you or I are about the impact on the United States and the risks to the world. So clearly the people of Ukraine are going to suffer tremendously because of this war. But there's this pressure and there will be an increasing pressure if this war gets more and more brutal for the United States and its allies to engage directly in it. I assume that pressure would mount if if the war goes in certain directions. But the U.S. and the Soviet Union and the U.S. and Russia avoided direct engagement since World War II, effectively, because they knew the risks of, of escalation to nuclear war were so great that, that any form of direct engagement between, uh, between us would be just a high-wire act. Are you guys as worried about that escalation as I am? I'm very worried because I just... I went back and looked at uh, Woodrow Wilson's 1913 State of the Union address for the State of the Union of course, coverage. Of yeah. course. Well, it was I the first— too. I looked at—John, I looked at his 1914 one, which is better, honestly. Sure. I'm yeah. surprised that you only looked at 13. Much and more— 15, 15, that joke about <laughs> roasted sweet potatoes. Woo! <laughs> Yes. Uh, but the reason I went back and looked at 1913 is Woodrow Wilson, was the, he, w- he was returning to having in-person State of the Unions. So that's the tradition that, that Biden is keeping. Before that, they were delivered um, not in person. And in that, he says, we are in a settled age of peace among nations. Six months later, you have the First World War. So the First World War is on my mind. And the First World War, you know, is... You have to go back and keep reminding yourself of what the hell happened and how it all spun incredibly out of control. And 
the, the, the notion that things can go incredibly out of control and the weird way in which people advocate for a no-fly zone without having being haunted by the specter of what that means, which is an agreement to shoot down Russian planes and what that would mean if something went wrong. Um, yeah, it feels like there any, at any moment things could go sideways. On the other hand, Biden was so clear in his State of the Union that no U.S. troops are going to be involved and um, others you know, sensible Republicans like Mitt Romney have been saying this could go very poorly if we get into an active engagement with Russia. So there's already feels like there's the signals that are saying solidarity with the people of Ukraine, solidarity with Zelensky, but there are clear limits to it. And the limits are are informed by what you outlined. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's such a obviously huge, terrifying risk that one has to be thinking about it, but it feels to me like a low risk because the stakes are so clear and Ukraine is not part of NATO and we're not going to impose a no-fly zone and we're not going to send troops there and it's going to be excruciating to watch the world sit on its hands as this violence takes place, but that's the world order that we have and I think that um, the U.S. and NATO will hold to that. I do, on a kind of lower level, much more lower stakes, I'm worried about the economic repercussions and the way in which that's going to play out in U.S. politics and, you know, what that is going to mean for Biden's presidency, how Americans are really going to feel about higher prices um, and other kinds of restrictions. And those things matter in part because it seems so important to keep the economic sanctions on Russia. But even though it is a small economy, it's that is going to have repercussions worldwide in terms of things like inflation. And um, so it feels to me like that's the more present risk, even though it's much more boring. Yeah. Wait, last quick question. What do you guys think should be done about these oligarchs? Do you think that their assets should all be confiscated? Their New York apartments should be turned into Ukrainian restaurants and things like that? Yes. Or is that? I mean, I may be thoughtless, but I'm fine with all of that. Is there some due process? Like, how close are you to Putin? How much of your nickel fortune, your fortune from Magneti Nagorsk comes from direct access to Putin and how much isn't? Well, it, to the extent that there, we feel an obligation to due process, why don't we let that kick in when they're not bombing the crap out of Ukraine? Yeah. You guys can have your due process when the person who's allowed you to have these ill-gotten gains stops being an insane person. Uh, the real question, though, what does it mean to stop being an insane person? Does that mean leaving which portions of ukraine do the russians have to leave for for the west to decide this is settled i mean is crimea back on the table um and and i don't i haven't heard a clear articulation of what that looks like because that's obviously uh, the off ramp that people talk about with putin but it's also what is the west willing to accept after all of this correctly stirring uh, fellow feeling for the freedom and self-determination of the, of the people of Ukraine. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest with your membership. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. We've been having a ball with our Slate Plus segments recently. We've kind of gone down. And we've gotten really philosophical. And actually, we're going to we be slightly philosophical today. today, which is how to be brave. Uh, is this another insp- Jocelyn special? She said it was inspired by you. It's, it's oh. but it's inspired by <laughs> Zelensky. It's inspired by Zelensky. It's kind of how to be brave. Yeah. Like how do we summon bravery in our own life if we do? So uh, please check us out by becoming a Slate. 
plus member by going to slate.com slash gabfest plus and you get so much else too you get exclusive episodes and other shows you get no ads on podcasts you get unlimited reading on the slate site so much stuff slate.com slash gabfest plus this episode is brought to you by fx's the veil starring elizabeth moss fx's the veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. President Biden delivered his State of the Union on Tuesday night. Like President Wilson's 1913 State of the Union, it was a return to normalcy. Uh... Biden's speech was a bifurcated speech, half a rousing call to action to defend Ukraine, to condemn uh, Putin and and harm Putin's Russia for its adventuresomeness, and then half a plea for Congress to return to his domestic policy agenda by bringing back the pieces of the Left for Dead Build Back Better bill. John, start by reminding us, if you will, <laughs> what a State of the Union speech can do. Uh-huh. And such a great question. is there any chance the speech would do that or will do that? It's such a great question because you have to start with expectations about oratory, rhetoric, the presidency, and the State of the Unions. And there has always been a vast disconnect between the pomp and circumstance of the mostly television um, networks, cable traditional networks, in covering the State of the Union. It creates this incredible sense of moment. There is all of this pageantry. And then the, the, the speech itself can't live up to that, A, because there is this form of the speech that is awful, and Biden embraced much of that form, which is to include every damn thing under the sun. And the reason, in part, that that's done is that if I'm at the um, at, a, at an agency in the executive branch, it's quite useful for me in the work I have to do with various stakeholders in the lobbying community and on Congress, in Congress to say, the president is committed to this idea. He mentioned it in the State of the Union. And internally, it's helpful as an administration figures itself out. But it means that a speech about everything is a speech about nothing. We can talk about the ways in which that was true in this and not true in this. And in theory, the idea is the president is supposed to update Congress on the State of the Nation and suggest some things about the, the way in which Congress should move to act and enact laws that would uh, improve the state of the nation. Briefly on Wilson, the reason he re- returned to the doing it in person, which Jefferson had stopped doing, is that Wilson felt that the presidency was, was going to counterbalance 
Congress, which was too strong and too powerful and too parochial, uh-huh. and that you needed a <laughs> yes, you needed a single executive who represented the entire country and the and who had a better mechanism for feeling the the views of the people to counterbalance in the American system. So, of course, we are now completely submerged in a world where the presidency is everything, and that's gone completely wrong. But that's that was the reason that Wilson showed up. Biden, Emily, obviously faces really bad domestic political circumstances right now because of inflation and COVID fatigue and crime and a lot of other things. It turns out inflation, really, people really, really, really do not like inflation. They really hate inflation. Was there anything that you think the speech did to set him on a course where whereby he might get some of what he wants done and whereby his his approval ratings might not be so terrible and whereby Democrats might not be facing such a catastrophe in November? I mean, not really. The parts of Build Back Better, he brought them up and some of those parts are popular. It was not clear what his strategy was for overcoming Joe Manchin's opposition and actually getting some of that legislation through. I mean, that's not really the job of State of the Union to lay that out, but I didn't really hear anything that seemed like it was going to change the game. I mean, I also feel like, how could the State of the Union change the game on that? That seems totally unreasonable as an expectation. One thing the Democrats did, which I think probably was helpful, was that they took their masks off. And that is a really important gesture. It provided a whole different image. I think symbolically, given the CDC's recommendation that 70% of the country um, is in a COVID state, at least at the moment where that is a safe move, I think that was like an important normy thing to do. Given Glenn Youngkin's victory, (laughs) perhaps a better way of putting it. Given many things which we have discussed on many shows. Right. Masks off, Ukrainian flags up is the was the symbolic. uh, Wearing a mask made of Ukrainian flag, that would have been. Well, that's what they presumably would have done if this had happened, you know, if we were six months earlier in the COVID world. Or even a few weeks earlier in COVID world, let's be real. Right. I think you're 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 right symbolically, Emily. That's a that was a big deal. That COVID was kind of an afterthought in this, although it's probably not great for the president because he, all the stuff that that he had to talk about is so much more sticky for him. Even though COVID's obviously not going so great. But one other point on your original question, David, that basically polls have shown over the years that the best a State of the Union ever does to a president's fortune, which also supports your view, Emily, is 0.4 percent improvement in his approval ratings. So these speeches don't do much to change the political environment. And when you have a news cycle that's clicking as fast as ours is these days with a war going on in Ukraine, it's going to have even less of an impact. But it did seem like everybody was watching for a moment in a way that's different with State of the Unions and that Biden, who gave a perfectly workmanlike speech, there's no line that's memorable. And that's often the case with State of the Unions. But in this particular moment of concern... There could have been one. And also, I just think that somebody should be brave enough one year to break out of the State of the Union rut and deliver a different kind of speech, which I can sketch for you someday. We've done, I think we've, done, we've, we've had a whole segments about that. Interpretive um, dance. Yeah. Yes. Performance art. I, one of the things that you have to remember about Biden, Biden is the first president in a long time, since our maybe Bush 2 or Bush 1, who's a terrible communicator. I don't think he's a terrible communicator. Make the argument. Well, I, all right. He's not a terrible communicator. He is, he is almost incapable of crowing. 
He is incapable of. I like that. Okay. Well, that's that's fine. But he's not good at taking credit for things. He's he has great feeling. He's really good at expressing feeling and his deep feeling and his his compassion and that I, and because he's I think a, a human being who's filled with that emotion and and depth and that speaks well for him. But he's he doesn't have the quality that Trump or Obama, uh, Obama or Clinton. Uh, or Bush yeah, he's not super charismatic. Be- he's not a great a, performer. Or, but of being able to take credit and sort of get out there and, and sort of make you feel like, oh, yeah, we got a win. Like, great win. Good job, guys. I don't think he, Obama be- was very good at that either. Uh, Obama was, was pretty good at it in a... In a, in a cerebral way that never redounded way. to his yeah. credit. No, I no. Mean, Obama, <laughs> was, Obama was good at it. But uh, he was good at to rallying. Not a red America or a blue America. Yeah, but uh, that wasn't we have a win. That was... Okay. Here's this thing we should aspire towards, which I think Biden does he, that. Well, mm. yeah, but not as he, not well. Sorry, David, finish your point, and then I'll jump. <laughs> no, in no, I don't think I had any more. more okay. Point. <laughs> so, I, you, one, one thing that was uh, I thought actually in the beginning of the speech with respect to the Ukraine, I was actually struck that Biden, who's been very sensitive, careful, and and smart about making this look like a response from the West actually did some first person, um, not end zone dancing, but he was at least on the, you know, five yard line and headed I am here on the field. Well, he said, you know, I worked, he said, I worked tirelessly as you did to build the European coalition. I mean, and he did. And so he did take a little, and, and he spoke in the voice of the leader of the, the response on the, on behalf of, freedom-loving people. Um, and, and, and so I, I thought he did try to do a little bit of that, um, you know, there as a speaker for the massed angered forces of common humanity. But what I am struck by is that his sense of empathy, which is so extraordinary when he employs it because he has felt such pain in his life, there is another way in which empathy can work in public conversation, which is not just to say, I know what it's like to not have a job because my dad didn't have a job but is to recognize that people who are feeling uncertain about the flux in American life, and think about the flux in American life. We're at the second year of a pandemic. Last year, there were four months setting new records of people leaving their jobs in the great resignation. You've had a third of Christians, according to one poll, have left the church entirely. We've lost a year of schooling in black for black Americans by a McKinsey st- study, and maybe five or so months of school in, in predominantly white schools. So you've had, I mean, those are just some of the ways we've seen flux. There have been an extraordinary flux in American life, and a president who's, who can put their finger on that, not in abstract terms, but can can walk people through at the actual State of the Union to give them a sense of control about what's happening in their life. That is an act of empathy, not just saying, I know what it's like because my dad went through this, but to recognize what people are feeling and speak to that and then give people some ownership of it. There's not much you can do, obviously. I mean, you can only do so much in a speech, I guess I should say. But there is a way in which when you explain people's lives to them, it's part of what journalists do, is you tell them what's going on, and it makes them feel a little bit more in control, even if what you're telling them is going on is kind of disturbing, because life is disturbing. And I think that's the that's the kind of if genius is is hitting a target no one else can see, I think that's the what the genius of this kind of a speech could be. The final point I would make is it's very it hard to It also shows why it'll never do its job because who wants the president to be a journalist? Sorry, go ahead. Um, <laughs> yes, no one does. <laughs> These speeches aren't great arguments. They, I wish they were, but, you know, they just aren't. Carter in 1980 tried to make an argument. Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan in December. He's speaking in January, and he basically says... We have to push back against the Soviets, and that's why I'm going to talk 
about two things, the Soviets and energy policy, because we can't be dependent on Middle Eastern oil and its fragility and therefore Hmm. embrace. And he sort of focused, did a big, massive focus based on events of the day on on one policy area. Now, Carter's not an example for anybody, and maybe that's a terrible way to give such a speech. Oh, so mean. But I'd like somebody... I'd like somebody to, well, I mean, in terms of, I don't, by which I mean example for anybody, I mean, the presidency of Jimmy Carter had some uh, challenges that are, when you make a Carter example, lots of people stop listening to you. Well reported. Yeah, people stop listening to you. But I think that was a, a smart, an interesting way to, to, uh, to try to deliver a speech and would like somebody to try it again sometime and not just be resistant to it because it was done during the Carter administration. So there were about a million responses to the Biden speech. There are about as many responses to the Biden speech as there are members of Congress. The Republican one from Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa did have, I thought was a very effective line that it was, this was a return to the seventies with rampaging Russian army, uh, inflation out of control, crime everywhere. That was speaking of Jimmy effective. Carter. Speaking of Jimmy Carter. Exactly. Um, but what are the Democrats doing, Emily, with every, every little thing, faction of the Democratic Party had to have its own response to Biden's State of the Union. The party just doesn't seem to be willing to hitch itself to him. Yeah, I mean, his approval ratings are low. There was a chance um, for media coverage. If you labeled your uh, speech a response, that was an unusual thing to do. And so suddenly you were in the limelight in a way that ordinarily whatever you have to say, nobody really cares about. Um, I also thought it was uh, ineffective, politically speaking, to be so fragmented. It could have been super effective. If what? If if these other... So the president's constrained by his leadership on Ukraine. He has he can't be a hack and speak for the freedom-loving uh, nations of the world. So he's, and the State of the Union is kind of constraining anyway. But you could have other m- members of your coalition make the case that here's what he's, be, just be more partisan. And there's a way it could all work in concert. Mm. <laughs> it was not that, no, as far as I gleaned. That. Not that I and watched also- every minute. At all. Also, when you have moderates calling out progressives, giving these responses, it's a, it's a symbol of the fact that moderates need to call out progressives in order to say to their constituents, I'm not like these people, which means to hold your job in the Democratic Party, you need to attack fellow Democrats. That's the signal that sends to me, which means we're going to have many more months of madness as the factions fight with each other, not to get to the bottom of what the party believes, but to send signals to their voters about who they are in order to keep their jobs. And if that's what you're doing, that's a kind of every man or woman for him or herself that's not going to be good in the end for that party. And speaking of, we forgot about one of the more memorable lines of the speech in which Biden denounced defunding the police, which, of course, is an example of turning on some faction of the left as opposed to making your big applause line something that is your opponents on the right are doing. I want to actually I just want to align myself with one point that Biden made. This drug pricing situation is ridiculous. It's crazy and infuriating. Oh, my God. Yes. And the more you read about it as it relates to insulin, my ex-wife is diabetic and just seen how the insulin situation affects people. It's ridiculous the the amount that people have to pay for insulin. It's totally unreasonable. It is absolutely price gouging. The companies are raising prices. So they invent new forms of insulin and they say, oh, we have to charge you 20 times as much for this new form of insulin that works better, which does work. Maybe it does work a little bit better, but they charge you a ridiculous amount for it. And they extend but then the even patent, the, right? That's how the, they do Well, that. then they have the old forms of insulin 
which they still have even the old forms of insulin, which they say, you know, you shouldn't use because you have these new forms, but they're still available and they work perfectly. They still raise those prices way ahead of inflation because they can because there's no constraint on them. And it's just shocking that people hate it. Yes. If you ask Americans what they want in polls, they say they want lower prescription drug prices. Like, that's what they want. And they don't get it. And it's really crazy and bad. Well, one thing you could imagine is if we were talking earlier about what lives after the Build Back Better, that's one of the places Manchin and the president are on the same page. So on lowering prescription drugs, also taxes, and and there is you could possibly see some movement there. Isn't Kristen Cinema a problem on yeah, lowering she, the price of prescription drugs? Yes, she. Hmm. Yeah, and there's some other moderate Dems. Yeah. In, yeah. in the house too. Yeah, yeah, that might that that might be the problem there. But it's so popular, um, and and it would be, it would be useful for the. Uh, I mean, uh, politically, it would be useful, and it would be good. Yeah. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Chesa Boudin is the reformist district attorney of San Francisco, recently elected. He's already facing a recall backed by a huge tranche of money, mostly from like one one rich, pretty conservative hedge fundy guy. Yes. There is a recall effort that has gathered enough signatures, 83,000 signatures, to call a June vote on whether he gets to stay in office. So Emily... Boudin is someone you know. I, I don't know if he's a friend, but he's certainly somebody you're acquainted with. Chesa is a former student of mine um, in the writing class that I teach. He is a friend of mine. My sister, Lara, works on some of the innocence effort in his office. So I'm I'm a huge fan of Chesa's personally, and uh, I'm watching this closely. All right. So why is he being recalled? Because you can <laughs> launch a recall effort with a whole bunch of money from a few wealthy people and by gathering only 10% of the city's voter signatures. Okay. I mean, right. Like we. But why is he being recalled? Why is he being recalled? But, because, yeah, there are lots of people who, who are elected officials who you could recall. Why is Chesa Boudin facing a recall election and not everybody else? else right. Okay, so you're impatient and I'm going to answer that. But let's just think about the fact that like this whole idea that that he's in terrible political trouble and having to have an election right now is a uh, very specific to California and a few other states. Okay. Now to turn to like the complaints San Francisco, like a lot of American cities, is experiencing a rise in shootings, in homicides. This has been true across the country. We've talked about it on the show before. It's not specific to San Francisco or I think can be attributed to Chase's policies, but he's become a scapegoat for that. And I think there's also a perception of disorder in San Francisco right now. The tenderloin has turned into a real crisis point. In terms of, you know, people feeling like they're walking down the street and they're seeing lots of homeless people and drug dealing and things that just make them feel like the city is kind of out of control. 
And I mean, look, I'm a huge fan of Chase's personally, but I think he is being unfairly scapegoated for these problems, which, you know, some of them are long-term problems in San Francisco. But I think the combination of this small group of people who are funding this recall and the fact that he's also become a kind of useful adversary for the mayor who doesn't want to be blamed and also for the San Francisco police, all those factors are, are combining here. I, I was unfair to you a minute ago, Emily, where I jumped I on you for giving the, ex- the structural explanation for why there's a recall. And I do think that that actually is the most important thing, which is that... <laughs> the uh, thing you jumped uh, on me a, for. There is a, there's a minority... <laughs> no, well, there's a, there, the, what we've seen in California... So Republicans in California are in deep trouble. They've shut out of almost every office. They're losing congressional seats by the, by the bushel. But there is this principle in California politics, which is extremely powerful, which is that if you can get a very small number of people to sign a petition, you can cause a a recall. And it's a way for a minority to play havoc with politics. And I think what we've seen with the California Republicans is this uh, mischievous, malevolently mischievous desire to cause political mayhem. And that's the greater greater than the capacity to to cause order. Chesa Boudin is now going to have to spend six months playing defense and being hamstrung and possibly losing his job. The election is going to cost the city millions. It's going to make national headlines. It's going to, you know, talk, cause San Francisco and its crime problems to be the talk of yes. of Fox and the conservative media. And you've done it for just a couple million dollars. And it's totally. what a great investment. It's an amazing political investment, whether or not he's recalled. Emily, can you contextualize his views about the disparities in sentencing and disparities in in what uh, uh, an office with limited time and attention, how that should attack actual the, the crime as it's taking place and connect that to the larger thing you've been studying for a long time. Um, because it's not just what's happening in San Francisco. It's it's there are other prosecutors who are trying to change the way that people are sentenced for good reasons. Yes, certainly. The argument that progressive prosecutors make is that public safety is their chief concern just as the DAs before them, but that the kind of lock them up approach to public safety has failed. That, you know, in California, two thirds of the people sentenced to prison got out, went right back in. So how is that making people safer? Another part of the argument is that if you stop prosecuting the relatively minor offenses, and marijuana possession always comes up in this context, or prosecuting people for sex work, for example, that you can turn your resources to investigating and solving the violent crimes, the big stuff that really makes people's lives worse. And that you're also going to work with all the other parts of the government that try to improve the conditions that lead to crime, right? And this is harder because it's a more long-term investment, but you're talking about poverty and education and diversion programs that try to bring social services to the lives of people who possess guns, for example, rather than just like throwing them into prison for a short term when they will get out and be stripped of their housing or jobs and then more likely to wind up back in prison. So there are these different prongs of it, but that's the argument. And can I throw a clay pigeon up in the air, which Please. you can demolish or let it land softly in the clover of the... Um, but uh, the First Step Act was inspired in part because there's a conservative movement to stop filling the jails full of people who have been prosecuted for small crimes. And so is there any way in which 
this is obviously a movement among progressive prosecutors, but also the idea that jails were overcrowded had a lot of support among conservatives with respect to the First Step Act. So is is there ideological connection here as well? Or is that something totally different? No, there absolutely is. I mean, states like Georgia and Texas and Louisiana have reduced their incredibly draconian sentencing policies because it is clear that this is a terrible return on investment. And this is where the right and the left can come together. I mean, there's also a really good libertarian argument for not having the government punish people more than it needs to do for reasons of deterring crime and rehabilitation, which, like, there's just no question from the research. There's a mountain of research that we've moved far, far beyond the levels of incarceration we need for those things, and that, in fact, our levels of incarceration are backfiring in all these ways. So, yes, there is common ground there. I should note, go, just going back to my point about recalls, is that actually, while it is Chase of Boudin may or may not win his recall. There was an extremely successful recall election already in San Francisco this year that we talked about, which was the the school board. Uh, the three members of the school board have been recalled. So it is not simply that that this is happening and uh, this is being confected out of nothing. That people do feel strongly. They felt strongly enough to vote out the three school board members. They were able to vote out. So there is real feeling as well as the chance to cause political mayhem. I have a question for you, though, Emily, which is talking about the problems that Boudin is having with the police. Are reformist prosecutors in general, I know they're not all being recalled, but are they they in general running into the same kinds of problems that Boudin is running into, either uh, resentful and uncooperative policing or popular backlash? Or are reformist prosecutors, the folks who were swept in that you've written about, generally doing okay? All of the above. The oldest play in the book, really since Barry Goldwater, is for Republicans to go after Democrats as soft on crime. And the progressive prosecutors have been punching bags for that. So you see in Pennsylvania right now, Republicans who are running for governor have made Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia, into a kind of punching bag. I mean, why? This is a statewide race. It's because they think that this plays well. There are other progressive prosecutors who have cultivated good to decent relationships with the police and have a lot of widespread support. I mean, Krasner won re-election with a hefty majority of the vote. Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, who's a kind of undersung uh, figure in this movement, but a big person in my book, totally fits this bill. And there was a good piece about him in the New York Times last week kind of asking like, huh, why is this guy in Brooklyn able to quietly undertake all these reforms when Alvin Bragg the DA in Manhattan has already been under such assault from the NYPD and other parts of the New York establishment. And one of the reasons is that Eric Gonzalez is a career prosecutor and has spent a long time trying to work with the cops. Now, they have gone after him, too. It's not all hunky-dory, but there are people whose personalities, whose backgrounds, whose offices work in ways that are more consonant with law enforcement. And then there are DAs that really take on the police. And one of the tensions here is that if you are a progressive prosecutor, the police can sabotage you. I mean, Chesa says in an interview he did with the New York Times Magazine with my colleague David Marchese that one of his problems is that the police are just not arresting people for the kinds of crimes that San Franciscans are really upset about in large enough numbers. And that is a real problem. On the other hand, district attorneys, if they're doing their job, have to stand up to the police on things like the use of excessive force. And that's a real tension in this movement. And I think 
we have made prosecutors very powerful in the local criminal justice and local criminal legal systems in our country. But then when they try to stand up to the cops or decarcerate, we are not so other parts of the system are not so excited about all the power they have and try to diminish it. Let's go to cocktail chatter when when you're having a delicious drink made without Russian vodka. What will you be chattering about, John Dickerson? I will be chattering about um, something I was going to chatter about last week, but I wasn't able to be here. Last week was the anniversary of the hanging of Nathaniel Gordon on the 22nd of February, 1862. He's the only slave trader in the U.S. to be tried, convicted, and executed. Now, 42 years before 1862, the slave trade had been made um, a capital of crime, but there were very little prosecutions. Between 1837 and 1860, there were 74 cases related to the slave trade that had been tried in the United States. Almost very, very few people were convicted, and then those who were convicted got really light sentences. They were not given capital sentences. Wait, can, I, can I interrupt for yeah. a question? So, you, so slave trading – so you were sla- – owning slaves was okay. It's just you were no longer allowed to import. Yes, on the high so, seas. So, so that was yes. the crime. That Bringing was the in crime. From, okay. from, um, from other places. That was the, that was the crime. And – and the crime was was essentially not recognized. I mean, it was on the books, but as the New York Times wrote it at the time, the cursed greed of gain has caused them to shut their eyes, had deadened their conscience when the slave trade was in question. So Gordon gets caught uh, outside of the uh, Congo with a ship with 900 black people, half of them children, all of whom he intended to sell. He was convicted, sentenced to hang. 25,000 people wrote a petition to Abraham Lincoln saying that he should commute the sentence. There had been one other slave trader that had been convicted, sentenced to death. James Buchanan um, pardoned him in 1857. So Lincoln declined. He said it was his duty to refuse, but he did give him a two weeks, which Lincoln wrote was for the, ne- the necessary preparation for the awful change which awaits him. Gordon took strychnine the, di- the night before his um, hanging and almost killed himself, but they uh, revived him and fed him full of whiskey, which apparently would ameliorate the the um, results of the strychnine, and was ultimately hanged. The account of this, which we will link to in the New York Times and Harper's, and the New York Times piece, the reason I'm, I mean, this is an extraordinary moment in history, but also when you read the accounts, they are, well, just read them. They are uh, uh, in both Harper's and the New York Times, and also it reminds you the, well, I'm not going to ruin it. Just go read them. Um, these two accounts of uh, of Gordon and uh, his hanging. Um, they're extraordinary pieces of writing. Emily, what's your chatter? So one of my favorite fiction writers is Amy Bloom. I love me too her books. Really? That's well, I okay. love Away. I love Away. I love Away. Books. I need okay. to reread it. Maybe I'll reread Away. Yeah, that is Note a great idea. We we jointly, it sounds like, recommend Away. And I've been thinking about Amy this week, um, who I know a little bit, because she's published um, an incredibly moving and I would say brave memoir about her husband's Alzheimer's and decision to end his life. It's called In Love. I've just started reading it, but um, it's a topic that's close to my heart because my grandfather had Alzheimer's for many years, and there is just so much suffering from that disease. And I'm just really deeply 
engaged in this book. It's a difficult topic, but Amy is just like the perfect interlocutor for it. She was a therapist for many years and in her empathy as well as her, um, the beauty of her writing really comes through in this book. So start with In Love, the new book, if the topic interests you. But yes, go pick up Away if you've never read that lovely piece of fiction. My chatter is about an extremely different kind of book that I'm reading that I picked up almost at random. It's called The Postman. It's a dystopic science fiction novel by David Brin. It was later actually made into a movie by Kevin with Kevin Costner, maybe even by Kevin Costner. And it just turns out to be extremely apropos for the moment. It's about a man, for the Zelensky moment, I think. It's about a man who is wandering in a post-apocalyptic landscape of Oregon after a series of terrible events have struck the United States. And he happens upon a post, an old postal truck and a postal uniform, and he wears the postal uniform, and then kind of starts posing as a postman in these small, isolated, intensely suspicious, troubled towns that remain, the few settlements that remain. And he pretends to be bringing the post from people, and that there is a that there's hope that there's a government that is restoring the postal service. And it's about the shared belief, it's about shared belief in fiction, kind of, the shared belief in in ideas about that there could be the possibility of a government, that there could be the possibility of connection across the whole span of a country. And it's not like a really well-written book, but it's, as a think piece, it's fascinating, uh, especially at this moment when there's so much doubt cast upon the institutions that we share. And you realize, like, actually, our belief, even when these institutions kind of fail us and don't work perfectly, if we collectively decide to believe in them and to act as though we believe in them, you can actually do something much greater than yourself. And um, that was, I find that really powerful at this moment. Of course, it's evocative of what is going on in Ukraine and in particular with what Zelensky was doing in, in calling people towards a, towards a shared, uh, shared sacrifice and a shared collective action, um, even though it might be hopeless. I think that is one of the messages of Heart of Darkness, which is essentially the power of the saving fiction. If Heart of Darkness is all about Kurtz's descent and that basically there's nothing, you know, what we are innately is this animalistic monsters that is imperfect as society is, it nevertheless has these saving fictions which are useful, even though they're fictions and full of holes that nevertheless our collective belief and at the end Marlowe saves Kurtz's intended by basically reaffirming the fa- the saving fiction. So I'm, I'm psyched that that book exists and that you've said that. Listeners, you sent us wonderful chatters this week. Really, really good ones. There were some great YouTube links that I followed and spent some time down a YouTube rabbit hole with some really weird music. Uh, but we're not going to do that. Um, mm-hmm. You emailed us at gabfest at slate.com. You tweeted to us at, at slategabfest. And this week, we're going to hear from Leslie Camp. Hi, Slate Gabfest. This is Leslie Camp of Somerville, South Carolina. My listener chatter is an obituary for a 101-year-old Belgian woman who had been in the Belgian resistance during World War II. She lived on the French border, and as a teenager, she assisted 135 downed Allied airmen get to safety over the course of the war. 
Her family had been involved in the resistance from the start of the war, and she was eventually recruited at the age of 19 and with her parents' blessing into the Comet Line, which was a Belgian resistance group dedicated to helping Allied airmen who'd been shot down over Belgium to avoid capture. As a member of this group, she would escort an airman across occupied France, over the Pyrenees, across Spain, and finally to Gibraltar. Quite a few of her resistance group were captured, tortured, and sent to concentration camps. She was one of the last surviving members of the group. Given the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, this story of courage seems to be very timely, as there will no doubt be similar stories told in the future of courageous resistance to an invading army. Wow. What a perfect, perfect chatter for this yeah. week. Absolutely apt. And for anyone who wants to read that, uh, that obituary was in the Washington Post for Monique Anot. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter to us there. Or email your chatter to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, so nice to be back, the three of us all together. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Interesting question today. Obviously, the past week, we've all been thinking about the great courage of the Ukrainians who are resisting from President Zelensky on down. It's made us think and and caused, I guess, Jocelyn or John or a combination of Jocelyn or John to ask us uh, how to be brave. How do we, what are the ways we find to be brave? It's not easy to be brave. You would think, in fact, there's this, I think there's this notion, oh, when your life is threatened, that it's easy to be brave. There's nothing to lose. But I think that actually it's, when you're, when, when it's actually dangerous, it's really hard to be brave because it's just easier just to hide and retreat and give up. Is there anything that you guys do to boost your own courage? And I, I guess we should probably begin. I don't think any of us is in a situation which requires a tremendous amount of courage most of the time. I think we've probably lived lives where we don't have to. Although we're now, we now get into the definition of terms question because obviously the, the reason, and I don't mean to be pedantic here, but we're talking about a very specific kind of courage in a very specific kind of moment. But there are other kinds of courage that are, you know, solitary suffering that requires courage or the, the we were talking about Alzheimer's earlier takes an, a certain kind of courage when you're the spouse of someone going through Alzheimer's. So I don't mean to be pedantic, but I think you're, I think you're, of course, of yeah. course. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, those, when I think about the things where I felt myself having to, to gird myself, they very much have to do with emotional confrontation or emotional grappling or enduring something emotional rather than having to face enemy fire, which I rarely have to face. Yeah, I don't have any facing of, of enemy fire, but I completely agree that that kind of bravery, like which is very quotidian, it's, it's not um, the sprint kind of bravery. It's the marathon. And it's, I think, incredibly hard to muster. And people who can do it in these enduring ways, like that's really important to recognize. Well, do you guys have ways that you, when you find yourself in a situation that where you're nervous or scared or deeply, you know, terrified, or you, you know that you're facing a, a foe who's much 
bigger or more intimidating or more powerful or richer or smarter than you that you that you that, do you have any tools just tricks tips strategies for for doing that i have i have one which is a combination of things um one is that based on a decision-making process that my friend David Onik, um, who once ran for the office of San Francisco DA, as a matter of fact. Um, oh, yeah. He <laughs> now totally that I think did. about it. Um, once, you know, he just had this very simple way where he of making decisions, and he was talking about basically going to see some old family friends who were in town, and he didn't really want to do it. And he just realized, you know what? Friends, family, and community are really important to me. And that's a value that's at the center of my life. And so if that's really true, then I'm just, then I'm going to go do this. In other words, he had figured out in the quiet and non-rush of life what the things were that he believed in. And one of them was connection and family and community. And that if you do that in a moment of some um, contemplation, you do the math behind it. You figure out why those things are important to you and why they're values you care about. And then in the, in when you are, faced with these decisions in the moment where all of your instincts and emotions want you to do the other thing, you just set a rule, which is like, this is what I believe in, and therefore I'm going to do it. So that is a way to kind of keep yourself from being swayed by the emotions of the moment. The second thing is to then add the perhaps cheat of seeing things through the eyes of your kids, which is to say, how do I want to be seen if I look at myself in the way my kids see me, uh, or I would like them to see me? And that, Ooh, I love that, John. That um, that definitely that has helped me. That's no cheat. That's good. Yeah, I think that's powerful. I mean, before I did the interview with President Trump on the hundredth day, if you liked that little bit, that was just a taste of the cornucopia of glory that will come from this Slate Plus segment. So become a member of Slate Plus today and get all of it. Go to slate.com/slash/gabfestplus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 